tokens that you have given to me. I sort of polled you as a congregation um, to ask your questions about God's word, questions that might be brain teasers to you, conundrums, things that are hard to figure out, and I have received a lot of those questions. And then you've given me some questions about practical Christian living and, and questions about culture and questions about how we engage each other in the body of Christ or how separated should we be from the world and how do we engage the world at the same time. We're going to talk about all those things as the weeks come, and we're going to also talk about some social issues, some gray areas that are always on the hearts of the congregation. What about social drinking? What about even things like tattoos? What, are, what about how do we deal with things like, uh, you know, the growing um, cultural the choice that people are making to be homosexual? How do we evangelize? How do we minister to people who are making all kinds of choices in our world? I want to just sort of be down to earth and very biblical but very real life with you over these weeks. Because it's a way that I can shepherd you even from the pulpit with the word of God. And I hope that it fosters a lot more conversations and a lot more thinking amongst you as believers. Because we grow not only by being taught, but by teaching ourselves and feeding ourselves with books and, and with conversations with each other. And so that's what I want to foster here over these weeks. The, the sermon series is called Doctrine life and culture or doctrine culture and life rather and uh, those are the things that we're covering together now we've got an easy one this morning for us if you remember it's on the sovereignty of God and it's really not an easy topic it's a very difficult one and I say that as a joke because it's hard to wrestle and grapple with this but we're talking about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man specifically as it relates to salvation getting saved and believing how do we reconcile that God's in control of all things that he is great big and transcendent and powerful enough to make a plan and carry it out and at the same time we are free moral agents who believe or don't specifically how is it that God can predestine certain people to be saved and yet give a general call to the whole world to believe how do we put those two things together are we supposed to sort of you know wince at certain Bible words like chosen and predestination and kind of hold our breath and then move on to other passages? Or are we supposed to benefit from all of the Bible? I choose the latter. We're supposed to benefit from all the Bible because 2 Peter chapter 1 says God has given us everything in the true knowledge of him for life and godliness. So everything we need for life and godliness is found in the promises and teachings of Scripture. And so I want to say it like the Bible says it for your edification and to stimulate you to think and to stretch and to grapple with some stuff that we ultimately can't finally reconcile, but we can believe it all in the Scripture. Okay, so we're, we're dealing with how do we reconcile the Bible's view of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Let's talk about some of these Bible words that make people nervous when they read them. Just straight from scripture, because these Bible words or these terms are what raise the issue. First of all, you have uh, Romans 8, 29 through 30, which talks about God and salvation foreknew who he was going to save and he predestined certain people and he called certain people to be saved. Titus 1.1 calls the church, Paul does at the beginning of his letter, he calls the church God's elect. It's from the Greek word electos. I mean it's just sort of a almost like a transcription from the Greek. Electos, people who were chosen. First Peter 1.1 Peter begins that epistle to the hurting, persecuted church by calling the church the elect aliens, the sojourners, the strangers in this world, but the chosen ones, the elect ones. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul talks about his evangelistic ministry in this way. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation. So he went to towns preaching the gospel, ministering the word of God, thinking God's chosen some people here that he's going to save as he preaches the gospel. So that is terms and concepts from scripture. But then we have a whole other side of this question that comes up through promises and Bible words like faith and belief and confession that I'm going to read to you here. 
how do we gel these two things together? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's a general call for the world, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people to believe, to be saved. And that if you believe in Christ for salvation, guess what happens? That promise is actualized and you are saved. You're not going to go to hell. That's true. Romans 10, 9. Paul says, confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What's going to happen? Here's the promise. You will be saved. If you confess Jesus is Lord and you genuinely, salvifically believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you're one of his. You're going to be in heaven forever. I believe that. Romans 10, 13. Here's a promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. One of my favorite stories in the Bible highlights this. Philippian, the Philippian jailer, right? Paul, Silas, they sang hymns. God broke open the doors. All the prisoners run out. They stay. Philippian jailer's ready to commit harikira. He comes in. He says, you're still here. Wow, I believe in God. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And he's talking practically. How do I get saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do this and your whole household can believe and be saved. I believe that. I mean, what's our mission? Our mission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. Why? So that they can hear the message and believe it and be saved and become disciples of Christ. That flames and fuels my heart. I love evangelism. Jesus was an evangelist. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. His forerunner, John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. All that's true. All that's my mission. All of that is my heart. But both categories, whether we're talking about divine election and God's sovereignty and God's plan and rule and the other side of the coin, believing, repenting, confessing, preaching the gospel so people will make a decision for Christ. All of that is biblical and all of it's true. So how do we sort of try to put these two truths together? Because they seem to contradict. I'll just say this up front. I know that my sermon isn't necessarily going to solve this for you. And I understand that. And I don't want it to alienate anybody one way or the other. We're just grappling with scripture together. A lot of the church and a lot of you probably would struggle a lot less with the Old Testament storyline where God chose a particular people in the Old Testament called Israel, the nation of Israel. And he said, you're my chosen people. You are the apple of my eye. And then, by and large, they were to stand out as separated from pagan nations that were worshiping false gods. And even at points, they were called to fight them and to kill them. And to be God-separated people. Many of us struggle less with that than what we're talking about today in the New Testament church. And the reason is, is because this is our version of that. And this is where we live. So we got to think this through. How do we stay flamed up for evangelism? Not be passive. Not be the frozen chosen, right? And at the same time, believe in a great big God who's in control of it all. That's what... My goal is this morning is to sort of bring us closer to the word of God in all these things. Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, specifically chapter 1, was the key that sort of unlocked this dilemma in my heart. I remember being a college student and reading Ephesians 1. It gives this grand picture of God's sovereignty in salvation. It tells us why he did it the way he did it. And then Ephesians 2 sort of brings us boots on the ground what he actually does when he saves someone. Sort of behind the scenes spiritually, what is the soul surgery operation that God performs when he saves someone? That's Ephesians 2. And what Ephesians 1 and 2 did for me by giving this high-level vantage point and then this boots on the ground vantage point is it showed me God's motivation, first and foremost, for why he sovereignly chose a certain people to be saved. And that is simply to give God glory to himself as the Savior. 
And then in chapter 2, it really, it begs this particular question. Chapter 2 exposed for me who really moved first when I was saved. That's the question. That's the question beneath the question. That's really the key question and answer that unlocks this whole debate. Who moved first? Was it me or was it God behind the scenes? That's the issue. That's sort of the footing, you know, footing and foundation for understanding these passages and trying to gel them together. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 3. The high vantage point of God is, is seen here. It's as if we're looking down from God's vantage point in heaven through his eyes to address this grand plan. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us as us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here's the motivation for all of that. I mean, you got predestination, you got chosen. It's all happening before the foundation of the world. It's all this spiritual blessing that Paul is sort of saying, church, you, you should enjoy what God has done for you and his grand plan. Why? Here's the motivation. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. His grand plan, whether we understand it or not, we can grapple with the motive. It was all to give God glory. Because God is worthy of glory because he has seen fit to save some out of a sin-cursed world. Bringing them, not only rescuing them out of eternal hell, which we all deserve because of sin. But bringing us near and dear to his heart for all of eternity. Resting in Christ, we're in the beloved. And that's why we shout glory. We don't understand it. But we also don't understand why God would save someone like us, right? And we say, God, we give you glory for that. That's the motivation for God's predestinating love. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So all of this is happening according to plan somehow. We've been predestined to gain eternal life inheritance. And then verse 12, why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In other words, why did he choose you and me? He chose us to join the choir. He chose us to be part of the congregation of singers who will bow before the throne room, uh, in the throne room of God, before the throne of God and say, glory, majesty, and honor, and power, and riches, and wealth, and authority, and praise is given to you. That's, that's what this is all about. It's all about the glory of God. Now, that's the high level, you know, high cliff point, vantage point, looking down at this grand plan. Now, let's go into the operating room in chapter 2. We sort of move from this big picture view of God's mission of creating hospitals all around the world for this viral infected society that God provides some saving help and healing to certain ones. That's the big picture of Ephesians 1. Now Ephesians 2 brings us into the ER, into the operating room where dead corpses are put on the operating table and God works. Look at chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's just say, to put it mildly, Paul was not necessarily into boosting the church's self-esteem with this paragraph, right? This is the sin condition that humanity is born into. All of humanity is born this way. And this boots-on-the-ground sort of vantage point 
shows us how bad it was for us spiritually when we were born physically. This is talking about spiritual death. I mean, just to sort of put it in princess bride language, we're not mostly dead when we're born. We're all the way dead spiritually, okay? We're, we're dead. We're all the way dead. And he goes explicitly into how dead we were. And he does this to make the case, ultimately, that God had to move first. We couldn't save ourselves because we're this lifeless corpse on the operating table needing the great physician to come in and help us out to be saved. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 2. God moved first. We're asking who moved first. That's the big question. And we're understanding this in terms of the order of actions. Do we believe first or does God cause something to happen in us first? What we're talking about really is the doctrine of regeneration or being born again. That's what we're talking about. But the setting for needing to be born again is proven by verses 1 through 3. We're born dead. How dead are we? Well, before, and, and this is sort of my outline here, this is what God does first, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and under that, before you were alive, you were dead. Now just bear with me with these capitalizations. I'm trying to emphasize some words here. Before you were alive, and it's clunky, I know, for you grammar folks, you know, before you were alive, you were dead. And I'm just trying to make the point that scripture makes. You were dead. How dead were you? Well, we were born dead. Uh, David said, you know, as a testimony of his own birth and sinful condition in Psalm 51, that in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. We don't understand that, but we know that all of humanity, except for Christ, the God-man, suffer from a sin dilemma. We're all born depraved and we're not all as bad as we could be we're not all Mance Charles Manson bad or Adolf Hitler bad in terms of the expression of our sins but guess what it's all in there until God redeems us the potentialities of all of our sin categories are there in the loins of of, of sin being passed down from Adam to you and me it's all there we all have the taint of sinfulness on all of our motivations we're born that way we're born in sin depraved and even if you were converted as a child which praise the lord if you are that means that all of those sin potentialities all of those attitudes were in your heart before you were redeemed and some of you experienced more of the expressions of what's in there than others of you. But we're all in the same boat until we are saved. That's what he means. You're dead. You're dead. It's total inability to save yourself. It says you're not only dead, but you're dead in terms of your appetites. Verse 2, in which you once walked. This is talking about your pattern of living, how you lived, what you loved, um, following the course of this world. We, we walked for the world. We walked for the appetites and attitudes of the world. We, we, we gave ourselves over to those things. That's the testimony of every one of us. And then we're dead in terms of our allegiance. Verse 2, we're following after the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Our father wasn't God the father yet. Our father was the father of lies, the devil. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Remember that in John 8? He says, look, your father's not Abraham. You're not safe in your religion. You don't get to trust in the fact that you're, you know, born in a certain denomination. You're, you're part of a church family. Your parents are, that doesn't save you. Your father's the devil until God gives you the faith to believe and changes your status from under Adam's headship to under Christ's headship, the Lord. And so our allegiance before we're saved is a dead allegiance under Satan. Verse 3, we're dead also in terms of our affections, affections, what we love. Look at this. Among whom we all, and it's all, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. We're not only dead in terms of what we love, we're dead in terms of our hate, in terms of our anger. 
Titus 3, 5 and following is an incredible gospel paragraph, verses 5 through 7. And it says, when we were unsaved, we were hateful hating one another. It's not that we don't have anger as a Christian. It's not that we don't sometimes serve the, the world that's controlled by Satan. It's not that we don't sometimes serve the affections and desires of this world. It's not that sometimes we don't walk as if we're not Christians. I mean, we, we still have those real-life temptations. But God has broken the dominion of that in our lives when we are brought to life. It's not in control anymore. This is the dead man status who doesn't care about Christ, who doesn't care about serving God. In essence, Ephesians 2 is saying that a person doesn't have the capacity to love the Lord as a Christian does, because they're not yet brought to life. But look at verse 4. There's an intervention that takes place for all people who believe. Brings us to our next point. The only hope for dead people is God. That's the point. Who moves first? God does. We're sick. We're drowning on the side of the boat and mired in sin and we're feeding our own flesh and we can't save ourselves. We need God to reach over the side of the boat and pull us in. That's why we call Jesus a savior. That's it. We, we can't save ourselves. Now, I do believe at the same time in free will, and we're going to talk about that. I believe in free moral agency, but I believe that when that free moral agency is ensnared and controlled by a dead sin status, that person is always going to choose sin instead of God until God saves them. We'll sort of bring that up again. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, because people are fallen or totally depraved, this naturally results in people who continually use their free agency to say no to God. And guess what? God holds them responsible for that, which is another mysterious thing. But God's in control of it all, and people are born as rebels, and in their rebellious state because they have a rebellious unredeemed nature they're going to look at God and he is not going to be appetizing for them the world is you're going to love the world the flesh and the devil every time instead of God I mean it shouldn't sort of be such a mystery and hard thing for us to grasp when we understand these verses in Ephesians 2 1 through 3 why people when we're trying to pray for them and and call them to Christ and bring them to you know families that love the Lord and introduce them to friends that love the Lord we shouldn't be surprised that they have no appetite for church or Christians should we because they're born dead it, it actually even though it's sort of causes us to just trust in God because we can't facilitate salvation, there is a sense in which we at least can rest in our hearts to say, God, you're in control of this whole thing because I can't change that person's heart. You have to, whether it's your spouse or your child or whomever. J.I. Packer, you know, he also addressed this dilemma in one of my top favorite books. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it's, I think, listed out there in our bookstore and he just said, right introducing this book, which it really was a, it was a speech given to um, you know, a, a collegial um, student body where he was trying to, to diagnose and you know, work through this issue of God's sovereignty and evangelism. And he was, he was saying, look, you know, whether you're more of a free will person or a sovereignty of God person, as believers, we all believe that God is the one who saves. We all believe that. I mean, we're sort of debating and jousting about this, you know, on a college level, but we all believe that. And the reason he said we all do is because of the way that we, in general, pray for people to be saved. On our knees, when we're begging God to save someone that keeps resisting the gospel, the prayers are pretty much the same. We're not saying, God, please let that person save him or herself. We're saying, God, please save that person. Please be the Savior. So there is some real, strong, living, common ground on this issue because we all sort of meet um, together at the foot of the cross begging God to save people. And that's what he does. 
That's what he does. And the hope of that is the Lord puts people on our hearts specifically to be prayed for that he often saves, right? And so that's the comfort in all of this as we think through God's sovereignty and man's free will. Well, first of all, we're looking at what God does. And before you were alive, you were dead. And secondly, the only hope for dead people is God. This is regeneration. Look at verse 4. Again, this is the intervention. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now again, we're looking at the order of actions here. And I'm asking the question that I think is the key that unlocks the door to this whole dilemma. And that is the question... Who moves first when someone is saved? Is it our faith? Is it our belief that initiates salvation? Or is it God moving behind the scenes, creating light first? And I think the scripture is clear that God is the one who does the soul surgery that initiates salvation in our lives. Not us. Look at this. In the phrase in verse 5, it's, it's very clear that God... May, look at this phrase, um, middle of the way in verse 5. He made us alive. Do you see that? It's the word zoe or life is in that word. It's sort of one Greek word that is he made us alive together. It's, it's together as a body of Christ. He put or placed life in us. That's what that word says and means. He made us alive together. God turns the lights on. And then we believe. That's what the scripture is teaching. R.C. Sproul, many of you are familiar with him and his writings. Uh, we have some of his books as well in the bookstore. R.C. Sproul put it this way in his book, The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. And it's his personal testimony, so I thought it was good. And we put it up on the screen. He said, I assumed even though I was a sinner... A person born of the flesh and living in the flesh. I still had a little island of righteousness, a tiny deposit of spiritual power left within my soul to enable me to respond to the gospel on my own. Can you sort of relate to that? It's the idea that, you know, it's where you think, when I got saved, I know that there was sort of a spark of something that cooperated with God that got me to him. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, it, it teaches in its doctrine that salvation comes through the cooperation of man and God coming together to bring eternal life. The Protestant, Christian, and I believe biblical teaching of Scripture is that we don't save ourselves. And so we're not cooperating. It's God who saves us and initiates salvation. And it's through faith, and we're going to talk about that, but there isn't some spark of life in us that initiates the engine beginning to spool up in faith and salvation. Ephesians 2.5, it says, God made us alive. Again, it's the picture of being a corpse on the cold operating table where he makes us alive. He brings regeneration. Sproul said regarding verse 5 in that phrase, he made us alive. He says, with one thunderbolt of apostolic revelation, all attempts to give the initiative in regeneration to man are smashed. Regeneration. We're going to talk about this from John 3. I want you to sort of hear this from the lips of Christ. There's a lot of people who are looking for some spiritual experience. Maybe you saw an article that I read this week. It was written in the, in the New York Times. And it was on how people are desperate for some new birth experience. And, you know, it was talking about a crowd of people who, who pay upwards to eight and $9,000 to be a part of this new age experience in the desert in Arizona. And the idea is that they, they go there and they pay this new age guru to send them out on a fast where they starve themselves and they don't drink very much water. And then they come back to this sweat lodge that sort of is four and a half feet high by 25 feet. I mean, it's just an awful situation. But these people, these high rollers are paying big bucks to go into the sweat lodge and sort of have this cathartic experience where they will commune with the dead and sort of have a new birth and a new beginning moment. 
Well, the wheels fell off of this program for this certain guru. He, he would dress himself in a white robe and sort of take this God posture and stand at the door and not let people in or out of the sweat lodge. And he would call his workers to bring more hot lava rocks in to create this steamy experience. But the wheels fell off when three people ended up dying in the process. People are that desperate. The article describes people trying to escape as they're going delirious and other people are passing out trying to get to the door that he's barred. And it, it just is a picture of this desperation to figure out what does it look like to get new life. One person who was desperate to answer this question was Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Turn there, if you will. Nicodemus was sort of the Pharisee par excellence. He was sort of top of the top of the list in terms of Pharisees and Bible teachers, Old Testament scholar, and he had connected with Christ and had seen Christ's public ministry and his miracles, and he was saying to Christ, you know, in a nighttime meeting, you know, sort of by cloak of darkness, incognito, meeting with, with Jesus, Nicodemus was saying, look, we know that you're from God, that you speak for God as a teacher because of the signs that you do, verse 2. And that you couldn't do these unless God is with you. But Jesus was diagnosing that Nicodemus wasn't really clued in as to who he was talking to. He knew that Nicodemus didn't really yet grasp that Jesus is God. He didn't get that. And so, verse 3, very important verse. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a God moves first moment in scripture, okay? This is where Jesus is saying, look, unless something spiritually happens in the soul, a movement of God where ganao, there's birth that takes place. This is what it means to be born again. Unless that happens, you're not going to grasp what's going on spiritually around you. You're not going to fully grasp who I am. That's what Jesus was saying. You're not going to see that I'm the king and I'm bringing the kingdom. So Nicodemus, he sort of is scratching his head and he's thinking, you know, in terms of his Old Testament knowledge. And he's going, look, I don't get it. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I, I don't understand. He's just thinking in terms of physical realities here. He's thinking about physical birth. He's not grasping spiritual birth. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's physical birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of flesh is flesh that which is born of spirit is spirit reminds me of first Corinthians the natural person will not understand the things of the spirit it's why people scratch their heads when you tell them the gospel or how much you love Christ or how much you love Bible study or why you bought a new book or why you have a relationship with a Christian or why you meet and 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 sort of try to grow in Christ certain people won't get it because they've not yet been touched by the Holy Spirit they haven't become a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians talks about this, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is a new creature in Christ, old things have passed away and everything becomes new. It's regeneration. Titus chapter 3. We are born again by the washing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what happens? Well, Jesus goes on, look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right here, Jesus compares the operations of the Holy Spirit to the wind. And if any of you remember, and I've mentioned this before, the windstorm that happened before the snow came last fall, you remember that was a pretty serious windstorm, and we had trees that cracked over and were laid down in our front yard and it it was the effects of the wind that did that and it was a good expression of what Jesus's point here is and that is that when someone is moved by God it's invisible we don't see that it's like the wind blowing and blowing our clothes or moving us along we don't know where it comes from we might diagnose it scientifically but experientially it's just moving and then we see the dramatic effects of it I was uh, sitting, my wife and I were sitting around in our den with uh, a group of people. We were having some fellowship together and some coffee together. And we were talking about our 
conversion experiences. And everybody that talks about coming to faith in Christ gives a little bit different version of it. You know, some people were young, some people were older, some people were in overt rebellion, some people, you know, didn't really outwardly rebel. And, you know, some people were saved in their mother's arms, you know, talking, you know, on her lap. And some people were saved as they sort of came to a crisis moment. You know how that goes, right? But at the end of the discussion, by and large, everybody had said something in common, and that is, you know, I don't know exactly when God transformed me, but looking over my shoulder in retrospect, I saw the effects of what God had done. The wind had blown. That's what they were saying. I didn't see it happen, but the wind blew. That's conversion. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, I know that some of you have specific prayers that you prayed and everything changed, and that's remarkable to have that kind of testimony. But ultimately, we're not trusting in an experience. We're trusting in the fact that we know God moved. Just skip ahead. Look at 1 John real quickly. I want to show you this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. This is why these verses make sense is when you understand this. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is a wind verse. This is, look, the wind blew in your life if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. If you believe the right things about the gospel, if you believe the true gospel, then guess what? You were born again. That's what it's saying. God moved first because you believe the right stuff. You do. First Peter, just flip over to First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Just want to show you this real quickly. Beginning of the, the epistle, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great, great mercy. Look at this. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who caused you to be born again? God did. God moved first. That's how we understand the sovereignty of God in salvation. He moves and then we respond in faith. That was the testimony of Lydia in the book of Acts, and you might remember that story when, when uh, Luke accounts of he and Paul going to the river to, to minister in Thyatira to Lydia, who was a seller of purple, and they're by the riverside, and they're having some worship in the outdoors there. And in Acts 16, verse 14, look at this. Luke says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And he describes this in this way. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord does that. He intervenes. Romans 8, 1, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It won't obey or submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot until this takes place, until there's regeneration. So, saving faith is a response to regeneration. Uh, what do you do? We've kind of looked at what God does behind the scenes. Now, what do you do? Look back in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, what do you do? This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, a very familiar couple of verses, and this talks about our response in salvation. It says, for by grace you've been saved, look at this, through faith, through faith. Then he goes on and says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The key to understanding faith here, which faith is the same original word for belief, you're saved through believing. Remember all those verses that say, look, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. All that's real. All that's what we've experienced. We're calling people to believe, and we believed, and God used that in our salvation. But it's an instrumental effect here. The, the preposition through faith simply means this. God 
caused us to come to life, verse 5. He, he regenerated us, and then in response to him regenerating us, all of a sudden we can't help ourselves but to say, Jesus is Lord. It's a response. It's like, it's like God changes our heart, and we're, we're raising the trumpet instrumentally to say, we believe. The lights come on. You're finally alive, as one author put it. You're alive. And you express that you are alive. That's the through faith factor here. It's through faith. God works in our heart. He moves first. And then we can't help ourselves but to say, I see my sin and I see Jesus as my Savior. And in that sense, Paul can say, look, it's not a work. It's not something that you're doing in cooperation with God to earn your saved status you're not earning it you're not climbing the ladder by believing hard enough no it's a response instrumental expression of what god just did in you and it happens like this bam bam it it's almost simultaneously it really it practically speaking doesn't matter when someone's believing um, whether or not god changed them or not you're just calling them to believe that's it that's why paul looked at that philippian jailer and said Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And guess what? If God initiates that moment, it's real and it will save that person. That's the point. It's just bam, bam, bam. It's happening in nanoseconds. But it's important for us to grapple with this effect so that we can not wince when we look at passages that talk about God being sovereign in salvation. It unlocks the Bible to understand this salvation order of operations. That's what I'm trying to open up. Did you ever, as a kid, you know, in preschool or grade school, Sunday school, pray the prayer? You know, I mean, let's have true confession time. Did you pray it over and over again? I mean, if you were raised in a Christian home, look, child, I don't want you to go to hell. I mean, we're going to talk about this right before you go to bed. Don't be scared, but let's talk about hell. <laughs> right? Right? You know, let's talk about eternal hell. Let's talk about flame. You know, what you need to do is pray and believe in Jesus to be saved. And so, so... You know, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, <gasps> right? You know, when they leave, and then, then you're praying, and, and you prayed over and over and over again. And I think that that's not all bad. I think that we take steps towards the Lord and the gospel as children, and God redeems children and saves children. But ultimately, it's not praying the 500th and one time that saves you it's not putting another prayer log on the fire that saves you it's when God opens your heart that you know whom you have believed and you're confident that he's going to save you in the end and that he saved you today right that's the testimony of faith that was initiated by God first that's saving faith saving faith in Ephesians 2 um, eight and nine is this. It's where you are expressing to God that you cannot save yourself. You're expressing to God that you can't add anything to his perfect saving work. That's faith. That's how it's not a work is you're saying, God, I can't save myself. I'm just giving expression to the fact that I know now somehow by the Holy Spirit that I can't save me by earning my way to heaven or praying a good enough prayer, but you got to do it. That's saving faith. Saving faith is saying it's all by grace. Okay? I'm just trying to open the door in this discussion. Let's go back to the teachings of Christ real quickly as we close. Uh, turn to John 6. I've got to get you there real quick. John 6. Uh, this is, you know, for your, you know, for you to look at now and then for you to look at later on in a deeper way. But John 6, verse 37 you see God's initiating work and our responsibility to believe in the teachings of Christ. Verse 37 of chapter 6. All that the Father gives me, that's the sovereignty of God, all that the Father gives me will come to me. You see how that works? God planned it and gives people to come to Christ. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Is there a responsibility to fall on your face before Christ? Absolutely. But that was initiated in the plan of God and purposes of God by the Father. Verse 39. Look at the confidence that comes when you understand this. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You want to believe in eternal security? It comes from understanding that your salvation was in the mind of God before you were created. And that God gave you to Christ and you came to Christ and responded to him. And because of that combination effect of God doing it first and our response to come to Christ, we are saved. And there's nothing that can undo that fact. Verse 40. And this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes... This is our responsibility, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's just looking, looking at this from two different perspectives. Verse 44, here's God's initiation to that belief. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, later on, verse 54, he gets into this context where he's teaching these hard things and he's saying, look, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. Jesus is putting himself out there and saying, look, this is all about following me even to the death. That's what he means by eating flesh and drinking blood. Blood, sweat, and tears. You've got to follow me at all costs. And verse 60 talks about how people weren't swallowing this. It was going down like shredded wheat. And it was a hard saying and they weren't really into it. They were kind of offended. Verse 61 and then verse 63 says, look, this is why you're not all getting it. This is why you're not grasping the gospel or who I am at this moment. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. How do we put all this together? Well, I want to try to put this all together in this way. Basically, J.I. Packer said it like this. You know, people who trust more in the free will camp or against the sovereignty of God camp, um, you know, they really emphasize that God sent a savior to the world for the world to believe. And, and whichever camp you're in, we all believe that, right? We all believe that Jesus is the savior given to the world for the world every tribe tongue people and nation to believe but if you're also emphasizing the sovereignty of God you don't stop there you don't just stop with the fact that he was sent and he's inviting the world to believe you take it a little bit further and you understand that God also sent the son and has orchestrated in his plan for you to be brought to the savior's feet that's Jaya Packer that's not for me but here's a here's a sort of a metaphor or a word picture to sort of get our arms around all of this. And I've sort of alluded to this already. Ephesians 1, sort of the high vantage point view, perspective, looking down through God's eyes at the world. It's almost like God, he saw, and, and if you were here last week, he allowed the world to be lost in sin. He did. That was part of his plan. He allowed for that. He's not morally responsible for that, but he allowed for that. And he created a plan for people to be saved. So the idea would be, you know, if sin is a picture of, pictured in like a viral takeover in the world. I know there's a lot of like apocalyptic storylines that are out today, right? In shows and movies, even video games called Plague or things like that. I don't play it, but my wife does. Wait, did I say that out loud? Oh, anyway, anyway, you know, these sort of like take over the planet moments. Well, it's like God allowed for sin and it has infected the world. And, and God, for his namesake, for his glory, created hospitals. And he, he planted people all over the world to go and drive ambulances and, and lift up lifeless bodies who were near death or dying. And he ambulanced them to, has them, has them brought to the hospital, to the ER to the operating room and they are pronounced dead on arrival and in God's big picture plan he is the great physician cures some of them even though they are terminally dead or on their way to death or pronounced dead on arrival he intervenes and that's part of what gives glory to the great physician that's Ephesians 1 Ephesians 2 takes you into the operating room where the corpse is actually put on the table and the great physician walks into the room. 
And at that point, the great physician sees that this person is dead. And this is you and me. We're dead on the table. And he connects the heart monitor to the chest. And the screen up in the corner, the heart monitor, is showing a flat line that this person is indeed dead, without hope. But there is hope because the great physician says, we're going to do surgery anyway. And he looks at those nurses and practitioners and he says, crack the chest. Open up the chest cavity. And Ezekiel chapter 36 says that the great physician takes out the dead heart of stone and then puts in a living heart into that chest cavity. He seals it up and the monitor is still connected. He goes over and resuscitates this lifeless body and breathes life into this chest. Suddenly, the people look over at the monitor. It's as if the angels of heaven are in the room looking into this moment of resurrection. And just like Lazarus being called out of the tomb, suddenly the flat line spikes and there's life. And a person in that moment, eyes open, does one of two things. They either say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I see it. I'm sinful. I'm worthy of death and hell. Or the person does that and looks at the great physician and says, you are the only savior. Save me from my sins. A person could have a different version of it. They might leap off the table and just begin to worship and say, you're the great physician. You are my savior. The expressions look different. But the surgery is the same. God took out the, the old heart and put in a new heart. And there's transformative response that happens from, from sorrow over sin to faith and exuberant worship. There is salvation. There is resuscitation and new life. The way Charles Wesley put it in one of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? Charles Wesley said it this way, and he was talking about himself. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's what it looks like to come off the operating table as a believer regenerated by the Holy Spirit, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we have taken a little bit of a step closer.